I'm excited about our passage of Scripture this evening. I haven't preached on this for about 11, 12 years. Uh, And I want to read to you Zephaniah 3 and verses 14 to 20. Zephaniah may not be one of those overly familiar uh, passages of Scripture, but if you were to go to our youth room upstairs, you will find that uh, Zephaniah three fourteen is written across the wall. Uh, and uh, I want to concentrate on some of the words that are written on the wall upstairs. But let's read uh, God's word from verse 14 of Zephaniah 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would take these ancient words of Scripture and make them real to us this evening and that you would show us how to respond to your word through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm very excited about some of what I want to say tonight, but I think before I get to that really exciting bit for me, I need to just give a little bit of background. Uh, As a fourth-generation descendant of King Hezekiah, it appears that Zephaniah was of royal descent. It's thought that he would have been familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah and Amos and possibly was aware of the ministry of then a young Jeremiah but he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah, probably around about the years 640 to 609 BC. Like many Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah had to bring words of judgment, words of warning to the people, words of uncomfortableness as God said the sins of his people must be punished. But then we come to this incredible chapter 3 of Zephaniah. And it's all about the future of Jerusalem. It's all about a future that is filled not with doom and gloom, but with hope. And it's all about a God who loves his people. And so we might, if we were to have read some of the verses before where I started this evening, we might say that God says that his people are going to be converted. Verses 11 to 14, they will come back to me. It speaks of the spiritual renewal of the people. As verse 12 says, the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord, they are the ones 
says God that he is going to bless. You know the old Murphy's Law, light at the end of a tunnel is an oncoming train. Well, light at the end of the tunnel for God and his word is never to dash hope. But light at the end of the tunnel grows from a flickering, indistinguishable light into a wonderful bursting flame of wonderful light and truth. Faith in God breeds hope. And to the people who have been warned of God's judgment, but who now look to him in hope, there are three instructions given in verse 14. I want to look at those tonight. The first one is this, sing, O daughter of Zion. Zion for the Old Testament people is not just the city of Jerusalem, it is the place of David, Israel's golden king. It is the place of all the focus of their hopes and desires for a great future. It is the place through the descendants of David from which the Messiah would come. The very one, of course, whose birth we celebrate at this Advent communion. So Zephaniah encourages the inhabitants of Jerusalem to worship the Lord and sing. Why? Because he is Israel's greater king. The city of David, the city of Zion, the city of the Lord, this is Israel's greater king, greater even than King David, king of kings and lord of lords. And then we have these wonderful words in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So let's, as we think of this, Think of what the prophet is saying. In ancient Israel, the king's word was law. The king had absolute power. And when it came to making judgments for those who had broken and transgressed the law, if the king forgave a criminal, the criminal walked free. And he could walk free without guilt because the king had absolved him, the king had set him free, and he would be one very happy person if the king had set him free. And of course, we know that the only king who can fully pardon us from our sins is King Jesus. We know that the only person who can absolve us from punishment and guilt, which we celebrate around this table, is Jesus And we know that he came into the world in order to take our place, in order to take the judgment and condemnation of a holy God that we deserve. And so we are to sing praise to God for our salvation. What was it that the angel said to Joseph and Mary? We looked at it last week, Matthew 1 and verse 21. The words to Joseph, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We often make communion into a very solemn occasion, which I'm sure it's right that it is. But we often also talk about celebrating communion. And maybe one of the things that we'll do as we respond to God's word tonight is, Sing, O daughter of Zion, praise the Lord. And the second instruction is one that might be very unfamiliar to Presbyterians. Shout, O loud, O Israel. Well, we're not prone to shouting out loud in our worship, but remember 
This is ancient Israel. This is the Jewish people who are being told that in the city of Zion, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is the Jehovah God that they worship. And now Zephaniah is saying, shout to the Lord. The image changes from the king of Israel to a warrior king. He is the one who would command the troops and lead them in battle. And as verse 15 says, he has turned back your enemy. God destroys the power of the enemy and the people shout in victory praise. Now here's the thing. Jesus has defeated our enemy, the devil. We need never be afraid of him because Jesus has defeated him through the cross and the power of his resurrection. When Jesus gave up his life and died, hell rejoiced for a moment until Jesus took back his life and rose from the dead and defeated sin and defeated death and the power of sin and the power of death. He has turned back your enemy. And what Jesus has done for us is like that warrior king of old defeated the enemy. For Israel, Zephaniah said there was no longer any need for powerlessness. Uh, To be a part of God's people was to live lives of spiritual power, verses 16 and the first part of verse 17. And that day they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. Have you ever wondered what that means? Well, Uh, Middle Eastern people, when they prayed, would often raise their hands in prayer. Uh, And you'll see people of the Middle East of all kinds of faith will pray with their hands raised to God. Uh, And when you're tired, your hands hang limp. Uh, And God is saying through the prophet, don't let your hands hang limp anymore. The Lord is with you, verse 17a. He is mighty to save. So shout to the Lord and rejoice. Maybe along with the Apostle Paul say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as a famous old uh, Northern Irish comedian, Jimmy Cricket, used to say, and there's more. And there's a tremendous lot more in here. Look at the third thing. because there's, This is what really excites me tonight. There are three things in this. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Here the imagery moves from God as king and God as warrior to something much more personal. Indeed, so personal, we could say this is a picture of God as our lover in the very best sense of that word. You see, this God whose praise we sing, this God who we worship and whose victory we thank him for is also Israel's bridegroom. But how can that be? And what does it mean? Well, look with me at the second part of verse 17. These are the words, uh, along with the first part of verse 17, uh, written on the wall of our youth room. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is what I want to concentrate our message on this evening. Is that not amazing? The Old Testament is viewed by many people as being full of judgment and sin and gloom and doom and judgment again and again. But here are some of the most intensely personal and encouraging verses of Scripture are found. Because God never changes, 
We should take what is said in verse 17 as representing accurate feelings of God towards each one of us this evening. And look at those three things in the second part of verse 17. He will take great delight in you. This is the language of a bridegroom to his beautiful bride, who may, you might say, beautiful to God. Yes, you and me too. If a man marrying the woman of his dreams cannot take delight in her or her take delight in him for that matter, they would be better off not getting married. I remember, this might make you think that McBride is a very foolish, foolish boy. But whenever I got engaged uh, and Barbara had to go back to her flat at Donald and I went to the students' accommodation in uh, Union College uh, and I just got engaged, I, I went up to the, the bedroom I had there and I opened the window wide and I turned the, the music on. Art Garfunkel, who remembers Art Garfunkel? Certain people of a certain vintage. I believe when I fall in love with you, it will be forever. And I played it out the window down College Avenue, whatever the street's called, Rugby Avenue, at full volume, because I wanted people to know McBride was in love. And we come to a God who says, he will rejoice over you with singing. We come to a God who says he will take delight in you. We come to a God who says that He is the one who so loves us that he takes delight in us. But you might say, I'm a rubbish Christian. You might say, I do so much wrong, I feel so guilty all the time. Well, yes, Jesus takes delight in you. So much so that he limited himself for a while in human form, and he came as we celebrated this table to die for your sins and mine. And of course, he takes delight in you. But you see, he also makes you worthy of his love, not because there's anything in you or I to commend ourselves to him, but because he sees us as those he has made in his image, and he looks at us in love and delights in us. Wow. And then Zephaniah says, he will quiet you with his love. That's a strange turn of phrase. What does it mean? The phrase I understand from experts is probably better translated, he is silent in his love. And so we move from the young man in love opening the window and playing the music as loud as he can to proclaim his love and singing over his beloved in in joy to God who's saying he is also silent in his love. In the classic Hebrew commentary by Kylan Delitch, they write the following, uh, and uh, I hope it may come up on screen, because I, I want you to even just to take a moment to pause uh, and reflect on what it says. The phrase, he will quiet you with his love, or he will be silent in his love, means this. The phrase denotes love deeply felt and absorbed in his object with thoughtfulness and admiration. I don't know about you. Do you want just to to look at that for a moment and think it through? God is absorbed in the object of his love, you and me, with thoughtfulness and admiration. 
Oh, let me just unpack a little of what this means. Here's the language of love. Language of love that is given unconditionally. God's love for you is deeply felt. Doesn't the cross prove that? God is absorbed in the object of his love, you. And he looks upon us with thoughtfulness. I've kind of wondered what that means. I think for me it probably means he looks upon us with the thoughtfulness of knowing exactly what we are. He looks upon us with the thoughtfulness of knowing all the gunge and all the muck and glare that there is in our lives. But he looks upon us with the thoughtfulness of one who knows that he has made us in his image, who sees what we will become by his grace and by his power, who sees the potential that we have in Christ with the power of his Holy Spirit working in us to transform us into the likeness of his own dear Son. And there is admiration in God's eyes as he looks at you, masterpieces of his creation, masterpieces of his creation. You see, it's as if God can see beyond the distortion of sin to the real person inside It's as if God can see beyond all that stuff that clouds our minds, that separates us from him, that that, that makes us feel, how can he possibly love me? And he can see beyond all that. He can see beyond the lack of grace that we have, the lack of forgiveness that we have, the lack of mercy that we have, knowing that we should be all those things, graceful, merciful, forgiving. He sees beyond all that and he sees masterpieces of his creation. And he quiets you with his love. And the third thing there is he will rejoice over you with singing. Coming back to my, my uh, popular music phase of Art Garfunkel donkeys years ago. If you listen to popular music, an awful lot of it's about love. Uh, if they took love out of all pop songs, there would really be very little left. And, of course, many songs are about just falling in love and being in love, but obviously also, sadly, about the pain of rejection. Some songs are cheap and trashy, but some, like Adele's Hello, grabs you from the start, doesn't it? Maybe it's just me, but, you know, when I first heard Hello, the, the, the first word and the first bar of the song, it just had me right there. And she makes you enter into a world of love and pain, of loss and hope, brilliantly written and evocatively performed. But God rejoices over you with singing. You cannot imagine that the God of creation would be stuck for words. You cannot imagine that the God of creation would sit down with a a pen and and a sheet of paper and think, what on earth can I sing about regarding this person or that person? I understand the most widely spoken language in the world is Mandarin Chinese with over 1.2 billion speakers. But I also understand that there are an estimated 6,500 spoken languages in the world today. You have to believe that God knows every one of them and many more that have been lost over the years. 
You have to believe that God hears every language and understands the cry of human hearts in six and a half thousand different tongues. So when he rejoices over you with singing, he cannot be stuck for words or a proper medium to communicate his love adequately for you and for me. And I don't know about you, but does it not do your head in a little bit to think that the God of creation... The God of Scripture could be running around heaven singing songs of delight and love about you and about me. You see, like a parent singing a lullaby to the child he or she loves, like a lover singing a ballad to the object of his love, like a proud bridegroom extolling the virtues of his bride, like a bride blushing with the understanding of that deep love, God rejoices over us with singing and composes songs that he sings in heaven about you and about me. How utterly, utterly amazing. And so we come with all that Christmas brings into our hearts and into our minds. We come to a God who was born not into a romanticized little uh, manger nicely lit with, with you know, heat and, and central heating and running water and all the rest. We come to a God laid to rest in an animal feeding trough in a manger, born amongst the straw and the stink and the smell of cattle and donkeys. Uh, and we come to this God who... As we sing, love came down at Christmas. We come into this presence of a God who went through that birth so that he might die. Uh, 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 And we think of the barbs of the straw in the manger replaced by the thorns of the crown he wore before he was crucified. And that is the extent of his love. And if that is the extent of God's love to die for us on the cross, then surely we should not have difficulty to understand and to believe. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray. Oh God, would you help us to know and understand what we will do with what we have heard this evening. May we praise you for the gift of your Son. May we thank you afresh that love came down at Christmas. But as we come to thank you for your word, Would you show us tonight, Father, how we should respond in that amazing truth of your word that we've looked at, and that perhaps afresh tonight we might meet your love with ours, that you would help us to lay at the foot of the cross all our ifs and buts, if God only knew what I was like, but if God could truly see me for who I am. Well, he does know what you're like, and he does see you and me for what we're truly like. 
and we're still the objects of his love as we will taste and handle elements that remind us physically of his birth and death and resurrection, let us remember he looks upon us with love and rejoices over us with singing. Thank you, Lord. Amen.